Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast and to our ongoing discussion of Milton's Paradise Lost. We have reached book eight in a 12-book epic, although, as I did say last week, but to remind us, book eight used to be, together with book seven, a single book. In the first edition of Paradise Lost in 1665, Milton published the poem in 10 books rather than the traditional epic number of 12. I've read critics who, casting about for why Milton would have done this, simply concluded that Milton was trying to prove he was different and original and not bound by convention. But I suspect that may have been involved too but I think a more overriding reason probably had to do with traditional number systems in mythology. 10, in a decimal-based system, 10 is the number of one to nine and then begin again. It is the number of the renewal of a cycle, of full circle. And I suspect that's what Milton had in mind. More on this when we get through the entire epic. And look back, there are many structural symmetries and additional numerological symbolism involved in Paradise Lost. However, all we need for right now is that books 7 and 8 were split apart when the poem was republished in the year of Milton's death, 1674, and books 11 and 12, originally one book, were also split. The only additions were about four lines apiece as a bridge in books 8 and books 12. So really, it's the same poem almost exactly simply sliced differently. The four lines that open book eight in the version we have remind us, and it's probably a good thing because it's been going on for a long time now, that what we have been listening to, what we have been reading is actually the voice of Raphael instructing Adam and Eve. And this has been going on since book five. Book eight opens with the new transitional lines, the angel ended and in Adam's ears so charming left his voice. And that voice has been charming Adam and Eve, as I say, since book five. Moving through the war in heaven in book six, the account of the creation of the world in book seven, up to now all we are reminded Really what we are doing is sitting at lunch with Adam, Eve, and an angel listening to the angel inform Adam and Eve at God's command of the things they need to know to forewarn and forearm them against an enemy that is pretty much guaranteed to be approaching them soon. And it's a very complete instruction, and it's not over yet because all of book eight continues the instruction. 
although with a difference. And if we ask why Milton chose to make the cut here exactly when he did, between seven and eight, there is in fact a very clear logical answer for that. Book seven is what we know for sure because it is basically biblical paraphrase, although I made a, a warm and enthusiastic case last week for book seven, the creation being far more than mere paraphrase, but an active imaginative recreation of the story of creation out of Genesis. But nevertheless, things we know for sure because they are in scripture, even if expanded and recreated here. Book eight is different. It is, in a way of putting it, what's still up for grabs, what is speculative. This goes back to the fact that in the first half of book eight, we get astronomy. In the second half, we get gender psychology. And I'm speaking right now of the first half of book eight, which talks about cosmological issues that in Milton's time were very much still open to argument and up for grabs. Milton actually knew Galileo, almost without a doubt had looked through the telescope to see what Galileo was talking about. And yet, in terms of a scientific consensus, it wasn't totally sure which model of the cosmos would win out. And there were so many questions. Basically, the old model was replaced because it could no longer answer, and we'll see this in a moment, some absolutely crucial questions about celestial mechanics that any model would have to answer in order to qualify as an explanation. And as they kept acquiring more up-to-date astronomical knowledge through people like Galileo, the less the old model was able to cope with it, and gradually it went from being creaky to being basically hopeless, and finally the new model won out, despite the repression or attempted repression of the church and the refusal of the church to allow the new model to come in. But here we are dealing with issues that were still very much object of argument and controversy in Milton's time. So he is faced with a difficult issue of what to do about them here. Raphael is supposed to be instructing Adam and Eve clearly about the truth, but the truth about certain matters and certain important matters at that was simply not yet known for sure in Milton's time. We are entering, to quote line 40, upon studious thoughts abstruse. These are speculations, and the first half of book eight gets a little bit technical, using some of the technical terms in the cosmological, astronomical arguments of that time. And what does Eve do? Here we are at another 
gender moment for both better and worse, in my opinion. Just as the discussion was going to get more studious and abstruse, what does the woman do? She makes like a tree and leaves in the old joke. She goes to tend her trees, her garden. She's not going to stay for the, you know, 300 level upper class discussion. Sounds quite sexist and in part is. But again, we have to read Milton carefully and we have to read him most carefully at all on an issue in which he was clearly ambivalent and conflicted and gender was certainly one of them. And he contradicts himself. He will say things that are sort of blatantly sexist by modern standards, and then turn around and struggle with it. And you see him do that about six times in a row within a few pages right here. Eve gets up and leaves. Yet went she not, line 47, yet went, went she not, as not with such discourse delighted, or not capable her ear of what was high. Make no mistake, Milton says, she did not leave because she was not delighted by such intellectual discourse or because she was incapable of it. Why did she leave then? Because as it goes on to say, she would rather hear this from Adam directly in a personal way from her husband rather than from the angel professor lecturing in the front of the room. And the following passage is just in terms of my personal reader response. It makes me laugh because I think it's absurdly funny. At the same time, it makes us all wince a little bit at the out-of-date gender attitudes involved. She preferred him, it says, because he, she knew, would intermix grateful digressions and solve high dispute with conjugal caresses. From his lip, not words alone, pleased her. Okay, I'm in academia. We speak of alternative methods of learning. There's one of them. It was going to be rather different than listening to an angel's lecture course. He would intermix grateful digressions, which I am certainly not going to define for you, but I think you can guess. Conjugal caresses from his lip, not words alone, pleased her. Why this should be true of the woman and not the man is, of course, the sexist part of it. And we simply have to balance it out against the much more enlightened attitude of, look, she didn't leave because she wasn't intellectually interested, had no intellectual curiosity, or because she was too dumb to understand all of this. Milton always caught, and I believe that this is both ideological and personal, crashing together. Ideology demands that Milton demonstrate the inferiority of the female and the subordination to the husband and therefore to God. Yet at the same time, Milton knew enough, having been married three times and relating to women, three wives, three daughters, a lot of experience relating to women, 
he knew directly what it was like to relate to a female human being, and he was clearly yearning at all points for an equal relationship because nothing else, it's repeatedly explicit in the poem, that without an equal back and forth partnership, it's not satisfying. So he's caught between the demands of ideology and his own personal needs and experience. So he waffles in this way. And we simply point it out and do with it what we can. At any rate, she goes out to tend the garden and Adam and Raphael continue their conversation. But it is in fact quite different at this point because the lecture is in fact over. The professor has ended the lecture and basically asks for questions and entertains questions. And the question and answer session, as I said, falls into two halves. The first half, astronomical. The second half, psychological, about gender and gender relations. Both of them have their problems from our point of view, but the astronomical part of it goes, as we will see, a good deal better than the gender part of it, where it becomes quite uncomfortable and momentarily unpleasant, both for Adam and for us. But we begin with Raphael entertaining questions from Adam. And Adam's first question is actually one, if we've read the whole epic, that had been asked him by Eve earlier in the poem. And he gave some sort of an answer, but he's now looking for a better one, a more complete and informed one. And that is the question of, they go to bed at night and they look up because they are outside, there is no need for a roof, and they see the magnificence of the starry heavens. And it puzzles both of them because they're not egotists who say, well, of course, that's all for me and to glorify me. The whole world revolves around us. The world does seem to revolve around us, literally. If they stayed up at night, they would see the heavens revolving. And to their knowledge, because it's the old Ptolemaic cosmos that they're looking at, it all does revolve around the earth, and yet why? Adam rather modestly says, when I behold this goodly frame, this world, and see this earth, a spot, a grain, an atom, with the firmament compared. And he asks, why should it all, it is so glorious, and we are a speck, why should it all revolve around us? In a famous statement in the early 20th century, Freud spoke of three blows to human narcissism, human self-importance, and the first of them was the Copernican Revolution that showed us that we were not the center of the universe, we were a peripheral speck. But this is long before that 
sort of vision of Carl Sagan's vast infinite cosmos was the standard. And Milton is already asking why. Why does it seem to revolve around us and yet we're not very important? And in the background, and it quickly becomes the foreground, is the question of which model of the cosmos. Raphael is a bad teacher, I have to say. <laughs> he does all the things that you should not do as a teacher. He starts out trying as if he attended education courses and they tell you how you're supposed to do these things. Around line 66, he says, to ask or search, I blame thee not. It's good that you're asking questions. But then he goes on to say, first of all, however, I'm not gonna tell you the answers to these. And second of all, you shouldn't be asking these questions. How to squelch an educational moment and to give Raphael a little bit of credit here, the real reason is that Raphael's author is in a hard place. The questions that Adam is asking and will go on to ask for several pages are questions that Milton and therefore Raphael actually do not have definitive answers for. And therefore, as authority figures often do when they don't know the answer. They waffle and obfuscate. And the first thing that Raphael says, I ask, I blame thee not, but whether heaven move or earth imports not if thou reckon right. It doesn't matter. Forget it. Don't ask, don't tell. It doesn't matter. And maybe you should think that God deliberately left this unknown, perhaps to move his laughter, line 77 and 8. Maybe he left mysteries hanging up there just to see what those mortals would try to come up with in way of theories and then laugh at them. Well, you know, that doesn't give us a very good opinion of a smug God sitting up there deliberately mystifying his subjects. And we begin to ask already, if we have read Areopagitica, the great prose document of Milton's early career, praising free inquiry against censorship, saying we don't know everything and therefore free inquiry without censorship is absolutely essential and a good thing, what has happened? Has Milton gotten conservative and ossified in his old age? I don't think so. Opinions vary on this matter. But I think that Milton is trying to do two things. One, he is trying to waffle, understandable, though not his finest moment because of it. Two, he's trying to get what remains a very important distinction between types of knowledge that is involved here that will come out within a moment. But to go on consecutively with Raphael's response, well, maybe God just hung a bunch of mysteries up there so he could laugh at the quaint theories. 
And to, again, grant Milton a little bit of credit, at that moment, some of the theories about the old model that was increasingly just failing were so desperate and so far-fetched that they really were starting to seem perhaps rather funny, rather absurd, rather hopeless. And whole books have been written on the subject of what is actually a, both a technical term and a term that became famous. And that is line 82, to save appearances. Saving the appearances, there's actually a whole critical book by Owen Barfield, member of the In Inklings, along with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Barfield wrote a book called Saving the Appearances. And that was a term in Milton's time for the various attempts to shore up the old Ptolemaic model, to save the appearances of it. The problem was that increasingly as their science and not just the empirical evidence of telescopes, but the mathematical evidence was what really destroyed the old model. It wasn't just Galileo going with a telescope and seeing sunspots on what was supposed to be the perfect celestial orb made of spiritual substance of the sun. That too, but much more importantly, the increasingly sophisticated mathematics wouldn't work out. And it wouldn't work out because as they only slowly came to see, they were in denial about it, they kept trying to work out the mathematics, the celestial mechanics, in terms of perfect circles. Why? The very phrase perfect circles basically tells us the circle was an image of perfection, and the heavens behind or beyond the orbit of the moon were still unfallen. They were not part of the fall of nature that accompanied the fall of man, which we will see. And therefore, they had to be perfect, and they had to, therefore, move in perfect circles. The problem is the math wouldn't work out. And so they began to fudge and basically try to combine the Ptolemaic and Copernican models with what were called, and you see these phrases right around lines 80 through 86 or so in the text. Milton is actually using the technical terms of the arguments, centric, eccentric, cycle, epicycle. An epicycle is a kind of a subcycle that is part of a more major cycle. And what's being referred to there in kind of the shorthand of the technical terms of the time is a theory, one of the theories, for example, tried to save the appearances by having the Earth circled by the sun, so it's still geocentric, but the other five visible planets that they knew of orbit the sun. And, you know, it began to look like some sort of weird celestial juggling act, and finally they simply had to give it up and say, nope, we got to change models, church or no church. However, right at the moment, it's up for grabs, it's up for argument, and therefore 
Raphael has to say, well, maybe God just doesn't want you to know this yet. Maybe you have to get into the upper level course before you find out. Although it will become clear eventually that Raphael actually doesn't know everything simply because the angels themselves don't know everything. Adam doesn't and Milton doesn't but the angels themselves are limited in their knowledge. But Raphael goes on to say rather obfuscating things, the kind of things that you don't say as a teacher to discourage students in a sort of subtly humiliating way because you don't want to be asked that question because you don't know what the answer to it is. Maybe God to remove his ways from human sense placed heaven from earth so far that earthly sight, if it presume, might err in things too high. Well, if that was true, of course, you wouldn't be down here, Raphael, giving a several book long lecture about what went on up there so that we would understand. There's really an extraneous reason for this. Raphael keeps talking, as teachers will do, I know, I'm one of them, and talks about what Milton often seems almost unable to stop wondering about. Now that he sees the possibility of the infinite cosmos of Copernicus and Galileo, he starts wondering. He was not the only one. And in fact, there were some thinkers earlier in the Middle Ages who also thought in this way, but now it's reinforced by a new infinite cosmos, wondering about other worlds, wondering about, around line 142, the terrestrial moon. If land be there, fields and inhabitants, are there people in the moon? And other suns, perhaps, with their attendant moons, thou wilt descry. He understands that the other suns might very well have planetary systems of their own. It is really proto-science fiction, and I've always been rather startled that the science fiction books, who are, which are not usually written by people with a background in older literature, but nevertheless, they don't seem to regard Milton, as I feel they should, as one of the uh, real precursors of what later became science fiction. And yet, bad teacher comes back. Heaven is for thee too high, line 172, to know what passes there. Be lowly wise. Think only what concerns thee and thy being. Dream not of other worlds, which is, again, uh, to hassle Milton a little bit. A bit hypocritical since Milton clearly himself dreams of other worlds. However, despite angelic smugness, there is a lesson that Raphael wants Adam to know, and it's a lesson worth knowing, a distinction between two types of knowledge. I do not believe that Milton is simply reneging on his great ideal of free inquiry in Areopagitica years before, but he is making a distinction one of the places it emerges is around line 191. Not to know at large of things remote from use, obscure and subtle, but to know that which, 
before us lies in daily life is the prime wisdom. What is more is fume or emptiness or fond impertinence and rendered, uh, renders us in things that most concern unpractised, unprepared, and still to seek. Milton is not an old-fashioned conservative, in other words, believing in forbidden knowledge and there were things man was not meant to know, despite Raphael. But he is making a distinction when he's not just covering up his lack of answers. His real response is, you need to learn the difference between these theoretical abstruse things, which are all very well, but the real wisdom is to know what concerns us in daily life. That's why I came down here. That's what you need to know. And it turns out that Adam and Eve really flunked the quiz because despite books of warning on the part of Raphael, they still are suckered by Satan and fall. They are, as God legitimately says, if somewhat unbecomingly in book three, they are sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. And the sufficient means, among other things, not just pre they are not predestined, but they are forewarned and armed with reason. Therefore, no answer here, but what I'd like you to think about, Adam, is to turn yourself towards the human issues. And they will begin to do that within a short period of time. And that part of the conversation is more or less at an end. Then there is a transition because Adam, who may not have much experience entertaining guests, since this is the first one that ever dropped into the garden, but being unfallen, he is instinctively polite and generous and wants to hold up his end of the conversation. Milton always, if you remember the beautiful lyric poem by Eve about the essence of their marriage being conversation, a term that means back and forth between equals. Anything else is not a genuine conversation. And here, Adam wants to keep up his part and give something back to Raphael. But what do I tell an angel? Well, would you like to know the story of how I was created? You're an angel, and Adam assumes that Raphael was around when Adam is created. It will turn out that Raphael was not around. He was on guard duty. So this is gratifying to his guest that, no, I actually volunteered for guard duty to keep Satan and his cohorts out while God was busy creating you. So yeah, I'd love to know what your creation was like. And it's a recounting subjectively from Adam's point of view, which is fascinating rather than a sort of objective camera eye view. What does it feel like to be created? and to come to consciousness for the first time. These are passages 
If you've ever read A Momentary Digression, if you've ever read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, it is full of references to Paradise Lost. And the monster, as Victor Frankenstein refers to him, but really the creature, the being, is fascinated. He overhears and learns Paradise Lost while he is hiding out before he has revealed himself to anyone after he has run away from Victor. And he is fascinated by the text of Paradise Lost and part of the reason is that he identifies. Tragically, he ends up identifying with Satan, the angry destroyer out of revenge. But momentarily, he identifies with Adam being created. What does it feel like to be created? And Milton, with extraordinary vi vividness, describes it in Adam's words. Adam comes to consciousness after being formed by God and instilled with the breath of life. And what is my earliest memory? Looking up to the sun, symbolically the source of light, and instinctively, he says, I gazed a while, this is line 257, the ample sky, till raised by quick instinctive motion, up I sprung, as thitherward endeavoring. I just instinctively leaped up, not just to be on my feet, but as if I was already striving upward. And that is the reason, and I don't believe Milton invented this theory, but the common theory of why humanity has upright posture and none of the other animals do. And this is why the instinctive reach upwards towards the source of spirit, but also towards the source of rational consciousness. We speak of enlightenment and illumination. And of course, a sort of implicit sexist observation that, oh, what a contrast with Eve, who we suddenly remember her creation, her first memories were of coming to consciousness and going and looking downward at her own image in a pool. Up, down. But at any rate, here he is. However, we have to have the creation of Eve. Adam urges this on God because he's hardly been created and he's already lonely. He already needs a companion. And they discuss that for a while, and then they go on to discuss, once Adam has a companion, the gender relations between the two, and it gets quite uncomfortable. And we will continue with that second half of Book 8 next week. Mm -hmm.